Hello and welcome to session nine of You Matter. Welcome back to session nine of You Matter, my podcast where we discuss self-care and all things relating to you, the clinician in and outside of your clinic room. So on this episode, I have the pleasure of talking to physiotherapist Liz Bailey about the topic of joy and other emotions. Liz, as I say, is a physiotherapist, um, but was originally a professional dancer, uh, trained as a sports therapist, and now works uh, through a company called West End Osteopathy as the lead physiotherapist on The Lion King Show. How amazing is that? Much as I would love to discuss The Lion King through the whole podcast, we actually meander around not just joy, but all sorts of emotions. The reason joy came up and the reason I decided to approach Liz was that she released a video some weeks ago of herself dancing in lockdown in one of the parks in London. I'm not sure which one it was. And to me, it was just the most joyful thing to watch. And I commented that it looked like a body full of joy. So when I was considering this podcast about emotions, I thought, "Hmm, who shall I, who shall I invite? And Liz seemed the ideal person. Now I say joy and other emotions because Liz and I discussed the fact that you don't get to choose just the good ones. You don't get joy without sorrow. You don't get sadness without happiness. It's it's a continuum. And one of the ways our conversation goes in this podcast is around which of those sides of you are appropriate and which parts of your life professionally, personally, where are they helpful? Where are they welcome? Um, you know, maybe with the patient or maybe outside of your work, where are they welcome? Where are they unwelcome? Which ones are you comfortable with? Which ones are you not comfortable with? I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, Whether you classify yourself as an emotional person or a person who likes to stay more in control, I think you'll find um, things that resonate in this conversation. But I'd really like to know if that's the case or not. Uh, If you, as ever, if you can give us feedback, um, it's great to know what you enjoy about the podcast, what you'd like more of, what you'd like less of, which bits of the conversations are really meaningful for you, any bits you would like us to take further. So sit back. Enjoy my conversation with Liz Bailey, and I will see you at the end of the podcast. So welcome to session nine of You Matter, and I am thrilled to be here with physiotherapist Liz Bailey. And I'm going to let Liz introduce herself, but what I know about Liz is that she was originally a dancer and then trained as a sports therapist and a physiotherapist, and she uh, is currently a the physiotherapist on The Lion King, which is very, very exciting. And I think she's worked on lots of other shows as well, but I'll let her tell you about that. Um, and I am interested in Liz's world because it's probably quite different to the one that most of us inhabit as physiotherapists. And I'm hoping that that will feed into and be part of our conversation today, essentially around emotions, whether they're allowed, specifically joy, which is where Liz and I started chatting the other day and then how we came to think about doing this podcast. Um, but let me let me pause, hand you over to Liz for a moment and let her tell you a little bit about how she got to where she is now and, and her world of physiotherapy. Over to you, Liz. 
Thanks, Joe. Um, and thank you for asking me to come on the podcast, which I have listened to all your other episodes. So it's lovely to be included on the oh, list of, um, of people. Um, right. So about me, just quickly, I I've, I've, was a dancer um, from the age of three. So trained since a little girl and then um, got to it at the age of 18 and then decided to actually go and do a psychology degree at university rather than be a dancer and go to stage school did all of that but once I graduated decided to try and actually be a dancer so I went to lots of auditions in London and then was a dancer for 15 years more or less uh, professionally all over the world cruise ships different countries um, lots of stuff in America and Europe um, had a dance partner nearly ended up on Strictly in 2008 <gasps> <laughs> one of my little name drops um, <laughs> but didn't get on it sadly but nearly to give you an idea of the kind oh, of level wow. we were at um and then trained as a sports therapist in around 2009 I think it was 2009 2010 because I knew it was something I wanted to get into and I was kind of aware that actually doing a physio degree might have been a bit much for me at that time so I did Mm -hmm. a sports therapy diploma so the last six years or so of my being a dancer I was also a sports therapist so I would do a bit of both and uh worked in lots of shows from that point forward so because I had the connections I kind of went straight into the west end and did lots of sports massage and sports therapy with people on shows like Matilda, Wicked, uh, Singing in the Rain, uh, Chicago, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, literally everything you can think of. I was sort of straight into that world, which was an absolute dream. So I got to work with a lot of the principals, you know, twice weekly, I'd see them form lots of great friendships with them. Um, Obviously had a lot in common with them, which probably helped a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And then 2014, I decided to try and take it a step higher and did my master's in physio at King's. Um, so obviously that's two years and then I've been a physio since then so it's like five six-ish years that I've been a physio it's about six years now um, and I went straight into private practice once I'd graduated because I was a mature student kind of knew what I wanted to do um, that was actually in a private sport uh, sports injury clinic um, but on the side I was still working with dancers as a physio and then uh, I worked with dance uh colleges like theatre students as a physio as well so I've always 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 worked with dancers in a clinical setting Mm. it's been about 12 years I've worked so since I was a sports therapist it's been about 12 years um and like I say as a physio five or six it's more like six years now I think um and then for about the last six months I've been the physio physio on the Lion King so previously when I've been working with companies it's been as a sports therapist this is shows in the west end I'm finally Mm. a physio now Ah. in the west end I would have been probably a couple of years ago but when COVID hit it kind of ruined my plans a little bit so anyway it finally came around job opened up with a company called West End Osteopathy and they are the company who I work with who actually service the Lion King they they do all the other shows in the West End as well Pretty Woman and everything you can think of Cinderella is another one that I work on a lot um so I work under that company but I'm full-time more or less nearly full-time on the Lion King and I work alongside another therapist there and I love it it's kind of like I've reached the pinnacle yeah, exactly where I want like to it. end up yeah um so I'm there most it's very antisocial it's all evenings and weekends but it's worth it it's good yeah oh that totally makes sense and explains a post you put on Twitter this morning which I loved you put a picture of yourself um I, I think your phrase was this is where it started and this is where I am now I think when and a yeah. photo of your well a, a post about you starting your sports therapy training and to do you say 2008 2009 it was 12 years Around ago I can't remember, yeah, yeah. More or less. and then a picture of you now um physio at the Lion King wow I mean just all that history I, I could have stopped you I was almost on Strictly and, and done the entire podcast about that but 
sadly we better move on from there yeah yeah it's been a, a quite I've had a really diverse background and people always think that I'm younger than I am because they forget I've had two careers like they mm-hmm. always think I've just been a physio so I'm kind of I'm a six-year qualified physio but remember I had 15 years before that as a dancer as well so well if you're I'm pulling it off Liz just go with it I say. <laughs> I'm, a more, I'm a more mature mature um, clinician than that yeah yeah. Yeah, no and you're a a great clinician Liz and I've heard you speak um at conferences and you know absolutely the credentials are are all there in the physio world you're doing great things and um uh, it's brilliant the way you're showcasing some of the work you do and what I also like is that through you I mean I'm intrigued by dance I'm not a dancer but I've always been fascinated by that kind of world and and, you know I I love listening to everything you talk about just because I feel like I get a little glimpse of, of the world you inhabit um and actually just pick up on something you said when you were talking there Liz you said you had lots in common with the dancers and you know I get it you obviously uh got these jobs because you understand what's involved in the the training and and what uh the requirements on a on a dancer's body but I wonder if there's any other ways in which you feel similar to those dancers maybe in contrast to say other physiotherapists or people in the clinical world Oh, uh, I don't know. I, there's there's no doubt that when they find out that I've got the dance background, it really helps just that relationship. I think they they kind of trust me. And there's always something to talk about. We always know the same people. It's a really small world. Mm. So when you know lots of their friends just by association, you immediately feel more bonded, and it it helps um, helps the whole therapeutic, you know, um, uh, relationship. I guess. Yeah. Um, but I suppose. And I don't know if this is where you were going with it because of the the sub that the topic we were going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. There's an element of the kind of person you are when you're a, a performer or an artist. Or, yeah, absolutely. You know, That's what I was guessing. At. Is that I thought it might be <laughs> a very um, unsubtle lead in there. <laughs> that was perfect, but it's true. It's it is true, and that's it's why it's probably um it's it's so worth talking about. But um. And this is why I love working with performers because they're definitely, they're my kind of people, I guess. And mm. I remember the first time I ever worked, I went to the NHS as a student. No, 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 I wasn't. I was actually working as a uh, an exercise facilitator and I'd gone into the, in a, a place in the NHS and it was so quiet. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is just alien to me. And I, I remember putting on social media, because I was on social media, mm. something about how God, the days have gone when I used to work and walk into work and everyone would be high-fiving and hugging and like <laughs> pinching each other's bums and laughing, you know. Yeah. And it was it was a quiet office. It was very kind of just I felt like it was quite a cold environment, probably because okay. I was new as well. Mm. Um, but I remember thinking, oh no, I, I miss theatre. This is awful. This isn't, I'm not meant to be here. And that was just, it was just a short job that I did. And actually, once I got to know people, it was slightly different. But the general atmosphere is completely different from something like a theatre or a rehearsal space. Mm. Where those those people even when they don't know each other very well, are incredibly um, open and loud and funny and they cross barriers. You know, they, they touch you all the time. Yeah, that's <laughs> like you're, you're constantly hugging and um, it's, yeah, it's very physical. And I think especially when COVID hit with all the restrictions with that, that really hit the industry hard for that reason. It's such a, a, a tactile industry. And um, so in that way, yes, I think I identify with the performers because we are very passionate we love what we do we're I'm gonna say extroverts but actually we're we come across as extroverts I've actually described myself as being quite an introvert Mm. with other people I knowing myself better I think I am very introverted but I can be an extrovert 
you know, the drop of a hat because it's a performance. But if I am very extroverted for a certain amount of time, it takes me ages to get over it. I have to go and like lie in a dark room. Yeah. <laughs> to have kind of down. just to come down. Yeah. That's how I kind of now identify as an extrovert because the way that I recharge isn't with people, it's by myself. And I understand that's part of how you how you know if you're an extrovert or an introvert. Yes. Um but um yeah, just the so the kind of person you are, and of course there's loads of different types of people in in performance generally, but they w- they will be very um outgoing and um honest like painfully honest wear mm. your heart on your sleeve that's me 100 percent. Mm. I'm sure it'll come out in this podcast <laughs> um oh, I have to be careful but um yes and I identify them with them in that way too so not just the performance background but the kind of person that you are for sure yeah and my as you were talking there my mind was swinging between oh that's totally different to the physio world oh no it's not it's exactly the same there's a performance element and and oh no that's different uh oh and, but then that bit about um needing to come down after after performing I don't know if people listening would feel the same but you know sometimes I when I used to do great long clinics I'd feel like that at the end of a, yes. a clinic because it felt almost like a performance all day and not to say hopefully that I didn't show up as myself but the part of myself that was often required to treat 12 patients in a in a row um, needed a bit of come down afterwards not least because I think you just require a fair amount of adrenaline to get through that many people's problems changing when we used to literally go from one patient to another and didn't have our gaps so I guess there's there's similarities and differences there aren't there what you just said is spot on though I've often said to my husband who he works in finance and he sits behind loads and loads of computer screens and it says I sometimes say to him god I wish I had your job I don't have to speak to anyone all day yeah because as a physio all you do is speak or listen but it's interaction 100% of the time the whole day isn't it absolutely non-stop and I find it so exhausting to the point that I do worry about burnout. And I've listened to your podcast about imposter syndrome and burnout and resilience because I really identify with that part of being a physio and how hard it is. Mm. And I think I, I have to sometimes be careful not to give too much of myself. And when you talked about compassion over empathy, I was thinking it's hard because the empathy is how I really how I get to, through to these performers and how I work. Yes. And I think how I get great results with them because I literally do the choreography next to them and I'm like right let's adapt it like this or let's do this or I know exactly how you feel I've had that injury and you know it's awful and they're they're crying because they're worried if their career's over and I've been there and you take it on and you try Mm. not to but it's I do think it's part of what makes me a good physio and I'm proud of it but I do worry about my my longevity in the career um but I think what helps me is that my clinic hours apart from on the double show days which are very long it's like an 11 hour day Mm, they tend to be about five to six hours that I see people for and there's guaranteed to be a couple of hours in there when I don't see people because everyone's on stage. So even in a shift that's say five or six hours, I'm probably only working three and a half, four hours. Mm. That's not that many people really, but that's enough. Like by the time I'm done, I'm thinking, gap. Oh, yeah, but I need the gap, you know? Yeah. yeah. But I completely agree with what you said. You asked me about that on the imposter thing that I did with Jack mm. about whether physio was a type of performance. And I, I think it is. I definitely see it as a little bit, but I, I wonder if I do that with a lot of things in my life. Like, do I, if I go to a family wedding, do I kind of present myself as the kind of person they expect me to be? Mm. Those kinds of things. I don't know. I don't know if that's just me, but hearing you say it, it probably isn't just me. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, um, 
I really identify also with that um, coming across as an extrovert, but you know, probably there's a strong introvert element and in I definitely need to come down on my own as well. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it, I guess it's there's a view on performance, isn't there? And sometimes it can be seen as a negative thing. You know, there's so much emphasis on being authentic these days. Um, and at times I've, you know, a bit like it sounded like you were questioning there, you know, do do I present myself as myself or is it all a performance? Um, and you can get really deep about that, you know, the, is your whole life a performance? And essentially, I guess every interaction involves an assessment of the situation how that other person is feeling, how they're receiving what you're saying, how what they're saying is making you feel, which essentially is what we do in a microcosm with every single patient, isn't it? And I, I think that's what you're saying. That's why it's so exhausting. It's a, it's an instant analysis, an assessment of this dynamic. How does this one differ from the person I was with half an hour ago? Mm. Um, and I think it's absolutely no surprise that through the pandemic, people are finding that they've actually really enjoyed the gaps that we had to introduce for cleaning. Mm. And I've heard so many people say now it's not about the cleaning. It's, it's about that, um, that, that moment. I I was, I had a coaching client who described it beautifully. She said, um, while I'm with the client, I blow this balloon up, this metaphorical balloon. Um, and I need the time to let it down again in between before I can gather enough puff to start blowing up the next one. Whereas before we were just blowing the balloon up and up and up and up and up and up all day long. And I'm sure these gaps will have to continue in some way, shape or form. And we're going to have to work out how that impacts financially, because I think it's been a good thing for us. I think it provides that micro moment, that that element of mindfulness, that breathing space that we didn't realise we needed before this pandemic made us address it Mm. yeah I I know I needed it for sure I I, I mean I didn't often find I think I chose my jobs quite carefully because I remember being a student in an outpatient MSK clinic thinking oh my god this is so relentless like you finish and it's like here we go again quick go half an hour well probably 45 minutes actually as a student but the back-to-back nature of the outpatient clinic I love the work more than anything but I hate the time pressure yeah and it's it's I always said like I sometimes think maybe the the time pressure is what would make me stop being a physio I I love it so much but trying to get everything done and notes are the bane of my life I absolutely hate Mm. doing notes and I I find the pressure to remember it at the end I can't do that I have to do a little bit as I go otherwise I I won't remember something important or I don't trust myself to remember every single thing that we do we, we do so much in a session um, I sometimes wonder if I try and do, I think I do try and do too much, even now, even with five, six years experience behind me, I try and do everything in one session. I have to force myself to wait, which is a lot easier when you work in a company like Lion King, because you can see the person tomorrow if you want to. It's really easy. It's much easier in, in a company like that than it is in like a, you know, an outpatient MSK right. clinic where you might see them in four weeks if you're lucky. Yeah. So I've actually got the luck. I see, but then I think it's not a surprise that I'm in this environment because I like the control over my t- my diary like that. Mm. So if, if I need a bit more time, I can go, right, I'll see you tomorrow at 4.30. Great. You know, it kind of takes the pressure off a bit. But the, um, yeah, the breaks between patients are so necessary for me personally. I, I really struggle with the back-to-back nature mm. of it. And that is literally the thing. Like I say, that's what would make me leave if anything did. The relentlessness and the time pressure really yeah. hard the notes thing is big I think I, I asked a question on um the physiotherapist support Facebook group a few months ago um something along the lines of if if you could introduce three 
um, systems that were specifically designed to support well-being in, in a brand new clinic, what would they be? And the most common one was paid time for writing up notes. Um, mm. you know, it's it's the thing that really preys on our minds. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time, isn't it? We're we're all saying essentially. I hear these things said all the time. Like, I don't want to go back to that um, relentless one patient after the other. And you know, when I hear the way you manage to curate your day, mine is very similar. And I know absolutely, I I cannot go back to the, those half hour slots, twelve patients a day. It, it just isn't good for me. And you know, there's two of us, and okay, we may be very similar in personality by coincidence. But if there's a if there's enough of an element of people who are craving this in our profession. Is it time for us to be brave? Um, you know, heaven forbid, switch the the uh, half hour time slots. Think about our pricing. It, it just feels to me like it's we're at quite a pivot point, and but it's going to require some bravery to to change some of these entrenched processes and systems that we grew up with. Mm. Yeah, and if it, I don't know if it is possible, uh, like you say, just logistically to do that in a business in a business that's trying to make money and also then the NHS that's trying to get through millions of patients yeah. that are backlogged. But that's why I chose the job that I did. And, and it's why I didn't go straight into rotations because it just wasn't for me. And I, I don't really thrive in those environments. In fact, they really stress me out. I don't definitely mm-hmm. don't do my best in those kinds of environments, but it's, it's definitely not just us. One of my educators, when I was doing community neuro said to me that he couldn't cope with MSK outpatients. He hated it. So he became a community physio because they had Mm. the time. I think he saw two patients a day in community neuro because each assessment was literally hours long. He would, he would have loads of time to do really, really detailed, comprehensive notes. And he, (laughs) I don't know, maybe I got it from him. I do such detailed notes. It's for my, for myself also, because to make sure that I don't forget anything, I'm really thorough, which is a good thing, but it's also, it does increase the stress, I suppose, because I'm trying to be thorough. But I remember he said that he would never have lasted as, as a physio in that environment. So I think that's maybe you can't change the system, but you can change where you work. Mm. And I think having the self um, knowledge or whatever the word is to know where, where you do well and where you don't do well, because I think it would be a shame if I wasn't a physio. I think I'm a good physio and I'm proud oh, of myself goodness, yes. for being a physio, mm. but I wouldn't have been a physio if I'd stayed in the NHS. It just wasn't for me. Mm. Um, but I think where, where I found myself being, I think, I thrive and I think it means my patients thrive. So yeah. it's a good thing. So just knowing yourself well enough to know where you do what, what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Yeah. And then finding your own journey. That's kind of what my tweet was about, about where I've ended up because I've made that happen. I, I remember when I was trained to be a physio and I was thinking, oh my God, I don't think I want to do rotations. You know, respiratory is not for me. Medical's not for me. I love the theory of it. I love it. I love mm-hmm. medical theory. But actually going and dealing with phlegmy patients was not really my bad. <laughs> you know, I, I remember just thinking, oh God. And But the pressure on the ICU, God, the respect I've got for the nurses, the doctors, the physios that do do that. Mm-hmm. I have so much respect for you, for you all. You're amazing. But it's just not, for me but like I said it either was I wasn't a physio or I became a physio in the environment that did work for me where I do really flourish and I think those patients need me just as much but in a very different way yeah I think that's a brilliant self-awareness and something you know if there are (laughs) younger physios listening to this people starting out on their careers I think what you've just said is so important you change only happens doesn't it when enough 
individuals change their individual circumstances and start speaking differently. And mm. I totally agree with you, Liz, about this taking control of your own career and curating things. You're absolutely right. It hasn't, your career hasn't happened by accident. It's happened mm. by you being aware of what you did want and what you didn't want and slowly nudging and carving out a path for yourself, which um yeah. is perfect for you wouldn't be perfect for the next person mm. um I, I think I, I get so many people coming to me um with questions about career transition and I think for a lot of us we followed the tram lines for so long and it feels okay for so long until it doesn't but we're not necessarily trained as a profession to take control in our early years I think certainly when I trained the systems were so literally get your degree do your two years and do your two years in the NHS and make sure you get orthopedics and rheumatology and neuro and heaven forbid that you don't do all those things and then it feels like there's a point at which you're almost um, not spat out because it's not that callous nobody's doing this to you but the the tram lines suddenly become a bit blurred and you feel a bit like oh gosh well what do I do now I don't actually know what the next step isn't so clear and I'm not in the habit of understanding myself and designing things in the way that works for me so I think what you've just said is is great advice for for people starting out and it also makes me think of um, the conversation I had with Susie Martin on my previous episode where she was talking about the the wellness action plan the document from um, Mind Charity and that was specifically looking at managing well-being and mental health in the workplace. But it was coming from the point of view of sitting down and agreeing with your manager or your clinical lead or whatever, what needs to be in place for you to personally to be okay? What sort of things to look out for? What um, what systems need to be in place for you? And one of those could be, how long do I treat patients before I get a gap? Or how long do I treat patients for? And you know, to have, be having those conversations. And as you say, changing things in your own individual little world, I think are so important and will be the things that create big change ultimately. Mm. That was a big manifesto from me, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Liz? <laughs> no, I think you just summarised what I said kind of, didn't you? Um, yes, I agree. But when I was listening to that podcast, I remember thinking, yeah, but logistically, would you hire me if I wanted 45 minutes per patient instead of half an hour? You know, does that make a difference? Hand on heart. That's what we do at my clinic. That's people what you treat, do. Yeah, yeah, people treat all different lengths of time. Yeah. I was speaking to a couple of physios I met. I'm, I'm doing a bit of a thing where I'm meeting all my Twitter friends. You've probably seen it. Well, I've met like three of them. <laughs> no, I haven't seen <laughs> that in person. Wow. Yeah. It just, um, it just, it, it kind of keeps popping up. So it, it, this, the opportunity to meet someone that I've been friends with on Twitter happens. And I'm like, right, let's do it. So I've, there's a few people I've met recently. Put me on your list. When are we meeting? You're on my list. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> my list is growing. It's good. It's all of them have been central London, which is so easy. I was like, this yeah. is ridiculous. Why have we not met? We literally worked down the road from each other one of the physios used to be the first physio on the Lion King. So it was like, well, we've got to meet. That's just yeah. meant to be, isn't it? Um, so I, was, I met a couple of guys who work in uh, Marlebone and we were talking about it. And I said about, oh, I said, my time management's terrible. And they said, oh, you know, we can book in people for an hour if we want in, in that particular practice. And I was mm. like, oh, yeah, it's great, isn't it? To have the flexibility where if you think, no, I'd, I'd rather have an hour than half an hour and you can do it. And it's so it's uh, my problem is that I would have now with everyone. I'm, I'm just terrible at discriminating like that because and if this is the thing, if I if you're my last patient of the day and I've got time to see you, you'll end up two hours with me in the clinic because <laughs> I cannot just make it half an hour. If I know I can do more, or I know I can help. I'll always end up and if I've got the time, I'll stay there with you, which is and I always do it every day. I say, right, just see if you can do this one in time. 
if I've got the time, I will run over. It's just, I don't know why. <laughs> it's because I care too much. My mum said this to me, you care too much. Um, and I've just got terrible time management. I'll just be honest. But <laughs> I hear so many in, in things you've said already in the last half hour. There's, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like there's a there's a shame around you made a comment about um, empathy and almost like, you know, I, I use empathy. It's my superpower, but I'm slightly embarrassed about it. And I'm, mm. and I'm also aware that maybe it may contribute to my burnout. Um, my last patient of the day, I spend too long with him. I care too much. What do you, one of the things I wanted to talk about, and it's changing tack slightly on the podcast, but I, I sometimes wonder how much emotion we're allowed as therapists so I'm quite interested in professional identity and I've talked about that a fair bit on these podcasts. Um, and, you know, what I mean by that is I think in the health professionals and many other professions, we grow up with quite defined um, notions or archetypes of what a physiotherapist or a, cl- a clinician should look like. And a lot of people that go into this profession are of course going to be empaths because why would you go into a profession where you're required to relate to people deeply and, and regularly if it wasn't something you enjoyed? And yet, um, I, when you look up definitions of shame, one of the interesting theories is that shame was originally a protective mechanism in the tribe. So if you were to transgress from um, a behavior which you buy into. So something that you believe is good for your tribe or in our case now good for our society and we transgress from it, that's mm-hmm. when we feel shame. So the positive element of shame is that it keeps things civilized and, and it's how societies function because shame stops people transgressing too far. Right. And interesting. That, taking that right back to our little microcosm of physio world, it makes me think, okay, so there are these often highly empathic people, people who, um, you know, I can relate to haven't been described as caring too much, being oversensitive when they grow up over emotional. Um, Working in this field where often the identity is you need to be um, slightly distant, you need to be in control of the situation. It's good to have empathy, but only so much. And it's good to have emotion, but only so much because you've got to stay in control. And it strikes me that that's quite a difficult line to tread and potentially a little bit shame inducing. If you, you know, I agree with you, I I use empathy. And if you take empathy away from me, that reduces my ability to do most of what I do with my patients and my clients. Um, And yet there's this, it sounds like a little bit a shame element around it. And it's quite a hard balance to find, isn't it? yeah, how much are we allowed? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to think where I heard it. Was it on a podcast with you, Joe, where someone said about how patients in palliative care like empathic doctors, but they prefer the compassionate ones? Was that you? No, that wasn't me. No. What did I hear that on? It was on something. So I don't know if that's exactly right, but patients... Say that again. Stay... So I'll see if I can get it right. I think it was in palliative care. Mm. Um, patients really liked the doctors that were empathic, but they preferred the ones that got the job done or something like the ones that had an element of compassion but didn't let their emotions override what they were doing where did I hear that um I I heard it and I thought gosh that's key because all of this mainly let's be honest is about 
your patient's liking you. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally saying that as a joke, but there's an element of that. And I think there's an element of um, being a physio for me was that I was like, if I can help people, they'll like me. You know, yeah, if, I, if I can entertain people, they'll like me. It's about, there is an element of being liked. I definitely, I need, I sometimes have to kind of stop, not stop, identify with myself or identify those moments in myself when I'm thinking, are you just doing this for the, yeah. uh, what's the word, validation? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I I always, oh God, I go on about it nonstop. I loved that I was a performer. I loved, I loved being able to tell people when they asked me what I did, that I was a professional dancer. It's cool. You know, everyone mm. loves, it's, a, it's a cool story. I loved being mm. able to say it. Um, and I love being able to say that I'm a physio now. I think being a physio is a cool job too. I've always thought it was, but I also think anything in medicine is pretty cool. I've always loved medicine. It's something that I identify with for detailed reasons that we could go into maybe at a later date or maybe later in the podcast but um mm. uh yeah oh I'm gonna go totally off on a tangent now no go go but, for it I love um, a tangent <laughs> yeah oh I'm great at tangents let's um, go down that rabbit hole so no what was I gonna say so you say about being about the shame of the emotion and I was saying about yeah maybe patients do like an empathic person but maybe actually they also want someone who'll just just sort them out mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. but I, I wonder if um society keeping us on track I've never heard that that's really interesting yeah well I just read that shame was useful and I thought how why why would shame be useful and then when I dug into it it was around that kind of keeping the tribe together I I suppose I I I don't know if it's shame that I feel but I'm a very I'm very emotional I mean it's interesting that you chose me for this post this podcast um I'm hugely emotional very passionate so I get very excited about very excited about stuff in a good and a bad way you know Mm. um and I I sometimes I don't know if it's shameful but I sometimes wish I was just a bit more like my husband who's just even keeled <laughs> nice and calm <laughs> he chose well poor guy poor guy <laughs> we are proper opposites attract because he's just nothing upsets him he's just calm and he's always the same you know yeah which is lovely I know exactly what to expect from him every day and poor him he has to live with me he's up and down and up and down and I I don't know if it's a shameful feeling that I feel about that but sometimes I wonder if it's for the best <laughs> for the people that I live with and work with and even for myself I don't I don't know yeah it's a good thing or not well actually the if I go back to the uh, the conversation I approached you with about this podcast um mm. I think I I wrote to you something along the lines of oh Liz I want to talk about joy and you seem like a joyful person yeah. <laughs> um, and that was kind of the <laughs> intro and yes it was on the back of that lovely video you released of yourself dancing in the park in London and I know that was something you'd done a lot through the pandemic when yeah uh, the park was one of the few places you could go out and dance and I know you've said you just you can't not dance and for me I, I remember I commented on that video that it just looked like a body full of joy and that that's what it that's was right yeah. yeah yeah and I think I mean I find joy fascinating in the same way that I find anger fascinating mm. because to me they're both emotions that potentially you can't control at their extremes they they can get out of control and if you're someone that that um perhaps is more on the side of keeping their life on that even keel and, and steadiness and in control joy and anger potentially going to be a little bit unnerving um either to express yourself or to be around um I know I wonder does your husband ever express the opposite that you know I'm sure he chose you for a reason as well does does do you know if he ever wishes he could exist more on those those extreme ends of of emotion or not (laughs) Uh, probably probably not 
because uh, I probably do enough of that for the both of us. But I do, <laughs> I do know that, like I've already said, he's a, a commodities trader, so he works in finance, but he mm. actually wants to be in the arts. I think that's probably, oh, well. part, yeah, probably partly why he's, he likes being with me. But he's a comedy writer. He's actually, he's actually a semi-professional comedy writer and is doing a fantastic course at the um, London Film of, oh gosh, what's it called? The London Film of Theatre and Film. Comedy writing. Yeah, comedy writing. <laughs> um, so he's, he, is, he is really artistic as well. And I think he kind of sometimes feels, feels a bit frustrated that he wasn't able to do that as a job in the same way as I was able to do dancing as a profession. Mm. People are often very jealous that I was able to do, quote unquote, what I loved as a profession. Mm. And I, I always come back and say this to them, which is a bit of a downer, but I say, it's funny because they do say, uh, what do they say? Do what you love as a job and you'll never work a day in your life, whatever that mm. saying is. Yeah, well remembered. Whatever that is, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I say, and there is some truth in that, but there's a very big difference between going to the park, putting your favourite, favourite music on and dancing with crazy abandon yeah. and being told what to dance, being put in a big, heavy, uncomfortable costume on the back of an injury when you're tired, having done a show that you maybe don't particularly love. So when your love becomes your job, you start to not love it anymore in a certain way. And being injured is a huge part of that, definitely. And I've talked, I've tweeted about this and I've talked about it, where doing what you love starts to become physically painful and you start to resent it. Mm. And that's, um, that's kind of a big part of where I love to be able to help the people that I work with because it gets their love back you know or if I can get them stronger then it then they're able to perform without as much pain or without as many injuries then they can continue to do what they love in a positive way I've gone off on a tangent again no, it's so, fine. um so uh yes I can't remember what your original question was now I can't so <laughs> about joy it was about joy wasn't it whether you asked whether your husband um possibly wanted would love to live on those extremes yeah joy and anger we were talking about as, as that's right. uncontrollable emotions yes and, and I it's funny because I'm someone who likes to feel in control I'm a bit of a control freak and yet I'm often not in control of my emotions so that's probably why mm. there's a bit of a um, I wouldn't say I'm completely out of control, but I'm definitely on the, the scale of being really excited or really down. Mm. I'm kind of very up or down, or and that's very, that's very much the performer in me. It's such a stereotype. So when you're dancing in the park, Liz, the reason, is is yeah. that is that you controlling joy, or is that you purely no, expressing that's joy? Like, that's like giving into it, giving yeah. into joy. But in a way, it's annoying because I always try. I do, I'm not that much of a crazy person that I'll do it with hundreds of people around. But I would if, if the music was everyone could hear the music. I would, but the idea of dancing when no one else can hear the music makes you look a bit crazy. So that's what I loved about it that you yeah, do it. <laughs> well, so, well, one thing my husband gave me AirPods for Christmas, so I yeah. finally had a, a way to listen to the music without being attached to my mm. phone, and it was it was so liberating. I was like god this is amazing so when I'm doing that video that you're talking about I can hear the music but my phone's sort of you know 10 meters away from me and it means that you've got the music is sort of in you but no one else can hear it and I always think god if someone saw me although it's it's clear probably that I am a trained dancer you still look a little bit crazy (laughs) so I do try to do it when there aren't when there isn't anyone around but there's an element of that that does restrict me because I am constantly checking to see if there is anyone around and if there is I'll I'll stop in general like if there's someone way off I'll keep going um but what I love about it is the freedom there's something so liberating about dancing outside because you're not really meant to I yeah. suppose slightly naughty thing Sli- slightly naughty like in the most ridiculously mundane way possible <laughs> but I love the liberation of dancing outside where most people wouldn't do it with 
only music that I can hear. I find it so liberating. It's really, but what's funny about that video is that when I came back after, I do that all the time and obviously don't film it. And I thought, oh, this would make a good video. So I'll, I'll video it. The two days I did it, over two days that I did that, when I got back to the house, I didn't feel as liberated as I normally do because I'd been doing it for show. I, yeah. I deliberately done it to, to be filmed. And I was more worried about, oh, did that bit look good? Could I have done it better? How else could I make it better? The performance so it, was back performance in Performance was back in it, yeah. So the thing that I loved that I do all the time, actually probably less in that part, more like in a common with lots of trees, so I'm hidden. <laughs> so yeah. I'll do it like in my welly boots in the, in the middle of Wimbledon Common and it's I love it and I'll do it all the time. Um, but when, as soon as I did it and filmed it, I immediately had an element of, um, I judged myself. Was it good enough? Is it going to be what I want it to be? How am I going to make the video work? You know, and it became my job again, almost. Yeah. So the video that you see, while it was fun to do, it had a very different effect on me personally. It wasn't as therapeutic as when I do it just for myself. That's fascinating. And I reflected on that afterwards. I thought, oh, the video was great. It was what I wanted it to be. And it made a lot of people smile. It, I, I had some lovely comments from it, which was the whole idea. I was like, this is fun. You know, it's, yeah. it's and lots of people wouldn't do it. And I thought, I think people would enjoy watching this. So I'm just going to film it. Well, I loved watching it. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I think it, it kind of had the effect that I wanted. I just thought it would, it would make people smile. And it did. But it didn't make me feel as good after doing it as when I do it for myself. That's really interesting. Yeah. So Liz, just imagine in a parallel universe that you'd decided to film a video of yourself having complete tantrum, like a complete anger expression. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> if they are the flip side, there's so much... Um, uh, disparity in acceptance isn't there I mean maybe you would but I, I doubt that you would be making a video about here's me fully expressing my anger or expressing my anger as fully as I can even within a controlled uh, the slight controlled element that you talked about with the dance and I'm not suggesting you would by the way yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I guess that goes back to my question how much emotion are we allowed and I am honestly not saying that we should throw our emotions around in front of um, patients are more I think drifting towards for some of us is part of our self-care finding areas in our life where we can express these extremes that are frankly not appropriate in our clinical environment or anybody's working environment you know it's not just yeah. healthcare, is it where you're yeah. not allowed to throw your emotions around all over the place um, I mean out of interest how are you with anger oh gosh so I used to be fine like until I became an adult and went to university and left I never really thought I was someone that got angry but I think I think as I get older I just get less afraid of expressing my emotions as well mm. maybe um but I would say I can get really angry but this is what I said it's the same as I get really super duper excited and you know like it's the best thing that's ever happened it's, it's so exciting but in the same way I'll be furious mm. about whatever so I and I'll express that and it's interesting when you say, how would I feel about watching myself? <laughs> you think, oh, gosh. <laughs> but wouldn't that be an interesting exercise? Yeah. Wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'd put it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Which platform would you put it on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or any platform. Um, <laughs> but, but you're right. It's like about the, being allowed to express emotion. Are we only allowed to express positive emotions because you kind of can't have one without the other, I guess. Mm. I've got another saying, which I love. See if I can remember it. Um, I believe this is attributed to Marilyn Monroe, but I don't think it was Marilyn Monroe mm. who said it. Do you know the thing I'm going to say? No. Um, what is it? If you can't handle me at my worst, you sure as hell don't deserve me at my best. 
I do. You heard of that? that? Yeah. And I think it's, I think people say it was Marilyn Monroe, but I don't think it was. I think that's just, it sounds like something she would say and yeah. it's all very glamorous. But when I heard that, I thought that was kind of interesting because it kind of sums up what you're saying yeah. a little bit, I guess. Maybe this isn't in a professional way, but um, yeah, if, if you want to see and embrace someone at their best, maybe you should be able to do that when they're at their worst as well, mm-hmm. because that is the whole person. And we absorb the gamut of other people's emotions, don't we, um, at work? I think so. Not the full, probably not on a daily basis, but I would say probably in my career, I could, I, I've got memories of experiencing people's anger much more than their joy, um, which that's mm. quite a sad thing to say. Maybe that's not true. Um, but yeah, we we are, I, I can't remember if it was Susie again, but certainly one of my guests has said, you know, we're expected or we we accommodate lots in other people that mm. then becomes off limits for ourselves, sometimes even in our own private lives, I think. Um, mm. You also made me think of something when you said about you know, your joy becoming your work. Uh, I think essentially my my joy and love is human interaction. And so it's not surprising that I turned that into a job, but but maybe the job did start to taint that a little bit. And I, I consciously make sure that I'm having human interactions in outside of work that are just for their own pleasure, as they always would have been, you know, when I was a kid or a teenager or before I became a um a therapist. Because otherwise, not only can you find yourself working everywhere, because you know, if you present yourself as a therapist in every environment, then people will will um, fit into that slot yeah. Yeah. yeah um but I think for your own sake you know if, if you love humans and and you know going back to that empathy if part of your love of humans is that deep interaction um and going places that frankly would be highly inappropriate in a clinical situation I think if that's a need it's worth recognizing and it's it's worth making sure that you still get that again as a self-care element yeah. outside of your work that just it just made me think what you said about when you when we see the the more negative parts with our patients because obviously mm. we see people that are in pain or who are, in, who are struggling who need help generally right one of the things I love about my job and I think this is why I fit in well and you are allowed to be emotional in my job yeah as a, as a physio partly because you know these people like friends like you can't treat basically 50 people I work on other shows as well by the way so I I do treat on lots of other shows I see freelance dancers so when I whenever I for example, talk about cases on Twitter, it definitely doesn't come from my main job. There's lots right. of different things it comes from. So um, I just sort of, I always want to say that because otherwise I have to be careful because it's quite a small selection of people I actually work with. But the good thing about it is you get to know them like friends. You can't see them two, three times a week in the clinic, but also because where my room is, is where the people wait before they go on stage. So even if I haven't seen them that day as a patient, I'll see them fully dressed in costume and they'll wave at me or come over and say, hi, how was your day? Mm. So you know them really, really well. I love that about the job. But you see them at their very, very lowest. I joke, not joke, that's not true at all. I say all the time to someone who I talk about often with my patients, I had another person crying today. I don't joke about it. That's not what mm-hmm. I mean. Um, I'll, we sort of say, gosh, you know, another one. Or they joke with me that everyone comes to cry at me. That's what I meant. Yeah. Um, because often it's worrying. They've sprained their ankle. They can't afford to take time off work. Or mm. um, it's a really, really bad injury. Is it going to affect their career? And Or it's something completely different that isn't a physical injury like a, an MSK type thing, but it's a pain that they've come to see me with as a physio to check if it's something else. Mm. Um, and they're really worried about it because it's in the chest area and they're thinking they're going to have a heart attack. That's happened to me. Um, 
and they've cried because they they're not used to having a pain in that area what is it they've been awake yeah. for, you know and they often do cry with me in my little therapy room which is literally a cupboard by the way off the side of the, back <laughs> of the theater um but what I get on the back on the back of that is that when they get better and they they go back to performance or the week leading up to performance when you start to get them doing the return to performance stuff so the big jumps and they they start doing their choreography or you start saying right show me a turn it's so joyful and so mm. exciting like mm. and the other day one person walked in who had had a very very bad injury she'd been off she's been off for four months now about three weeks or so she walked in for the first time ever she walked normally and as she walked past my door I went oh my god you're walking <laughs> you know this is three and a half months after the injury and I went you're walking normally and I I cried <laughs> yeah. because it was huge like I wasn't sure she would even walk properly wow. normally again let alone and now we're thinking right there's a chance she might actually get back into this show and we've still got a bit more work to do and then recently I had another girl starting to do the dance stuff so we were talking about a little bit of jumping a little bit of turning and she was so excited and I, w- I went through all I was definitely empathizing there's no compassion involved I was, <laughs> I was I was there with her I was you know we, I was doing the dance next to her which is a nice thing I can sort of I know exactly how it feels to do a double pirouette on an ankle that's been injured mm, mm. so that's the great bit about my job so that emotional part I love but you get the bad bit as well which is when you're trying to console someone through something that might be a life changing career stopping injury but then when you get them back on stage god that's an amazing thing to be part of like when when we get one girl who's had a very very long injury I'm hoping she's going to open her show in November she never even got to open the show she got injured before it started and I'm going to go and make sure I sit in the audience and watch her opening night and I know I'm going to cry but how could you I don't know how you can go through that with someone not get involved not get emotional no well that's what I was going to say I mean for all your comments earlier about you know are are you too performative or too much of this that and the other are you too much is, is basically what I hear if if you weren't then those people in this industry wouldn't have that element that they need and, and yes maybe there may be other health professionals that provide more that slightly more distant compassion element of their care at times but you know that's such a to basically to have somewhere to cry and to show joy yeah. for them you know if, if for me if I were you and, and that's what I knew I provided a, a place for someone to express um, sadness and joy then job done that that's good enough I'd say <laughs> it would yeah. be for me <laughs> and, it's, and it, is, it is what I love about it but I don't think you'd get this you don't get the same thing in just a, a standard outpatient clinic I think when you see you do see the same patients for maybe weeks at a time mm. but you don't see them for years at a time I've known no. some of them for years on different shows you know um and I love that about yeah. it but yeah. maybe maybe it's little bits of the same thing though. You're absolutely right. You're not going to see it at that intensity and that regularity, but it's still, you know, to recover from any injury and get back to function and, you know, do do the thing in, in our patient's life, which which is the equivalent to you know, your dancer opening the show. You know, that we go through many versions of that with people all the time, don't we? And um Oh, hundred percent. In fact, you saying it makes me realise I remember when I was a student working in Euro and we had a lady who had a stroke and we got her back to walking. That was way more exciting than ever any performance to me. Mm-hmm. Seeing someone be able to just walk and the delight in her face that she walked for the first time in however many months it was, I was like, Oh, okay, I get it. It's not all about being able to just kick your head and get back to being a dancer. Getting someone the ability to be able to walk to make a cup of tea by themselves is huge yeah and I, I completely and utterly understand why people get a huge amount of um uh, 
and yeah the the ad the adls the activities of daily living that we all need to be able to do are way more important i guess mm-hmm. than than someone just being able to be get back on stage although it's their career but yes there's so much in that just yeah. just being able to someone to be able to sit and stand by themselves i i can i don't at all take anything away from those tasks which are no and i didn't mean to put it in a hierarchy and you know um, no 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 of, you didn't you didn't uh, but it just makes me yeah makes me probably reflect. more parallels than perhaps we yeah, yeah. At, the, at the start of this conversation so we've meandered around this and I, I do want to I'm intrigued you mentioned uh maybe we could talk about it on another podcast but let's get it in as the last question you said it was something you said about your interest in medicine um and that whole medical world what was behind oh. that comment oh gosh this is a long story well is that it, a big question for the last a, one <laughs> it's a complicated story I'm trying to think how I can kind of pitch this in to ha- like to link in with like, the podcast but um it's to do with it also it's there's a big part of it is to do with my my feelings of imposter imposter syndrome mm. when it comes to medicine oh gosh how, how do I put it, it so <laughs> so I'd I'd always been a dancer and I identified as that and that's why in general I kind of feel comfortable as a dancer and I I always say that first time, oh yes I used to be a professional dancer but there's always, there's always been a lure for me with medicine and that comes from the fact that oh, it's a it's a big story, Joe. I'm going to yeah, see how I can. We'll have it, a long come, it comes from the it comes from the fact that when I was 13, I found out that I was born by sperm donation. Okay. So my dad was a sperm donor, and the only thing I had ever known about him was that he was a doctor. Right. So from the age of 13, I kind of my my life shifted a lot in my head, mm. and the only thing I ever knew about my biological father was that he was medically trained and was a was a he was a, a sorry a student doctor when mm. he when he donated right mm. so that has always been a bit of a pull for me I've always kind of slightly worshipped medicine mm. doctors um because and you I don't even have to explain why I think that's probably obvious yes right just because it's someone who I didn't know and I'd always found it really interesting um <laughs> so uh yeah, I don't know how to put this into the context of the podcast now. I'll, I'll just keep talking about it. But yeah. if it comes to joy and having less imposter syndrome, this is a good way to link it in. The beginning of this year, so January, February this year, we found my dad. So mm. I have now spoken to my dad on um, Zoom and mm. WhatsApp. Uh, we found him and it turns out that he's he's just fantastic. He's everything we always hoped he would be. He's He's... He's still practicing as a doctor. He li- actually lives in Australia and he does, he's also what he a self-described, I quote unquote, media tart. So he loves to do, <laughs> he loves to do TV sections. He hosts a radio show. He does loads of loads and loads of podcasts. Wow. So it turns out that, yeah, it's cool. Threads it? everywhere. <laughs> yeah, literally. And, and it, it turns out that his whole family was incredibly medical. And whenever I think about my love for it, and ever since I was young and the fact that I do it now, um, it kind of makes a little bit of sense. And sense. I spoke to him and I found out what he was like and that he is still a practicing doctor and that he loves it. His whole family was medical. His mum was a psychiatrist. Um, it's kind of helped me identify more as a physio, I think. I kind, oh, of, okay. I kind of feel like I belong find your home. More. Yeah, a little bit. And like I say, I always knew that my dad was a doctor, but I'd never never spoken to him or knew who he was so that's been a really huge part of me accepting what I do I think oh that beautifully ties in yeah I mean what I hear there is you finding acceptance in a world that 
as we totally ties everything we've said, Liz, because you, to me, it, it, it sounds like finding acceptance in a world that sometimes can seem um, the more sensible, uh, slightly restricted, not the place for all that, you know, crazy performative stuff. And yet you find your dad, who was a sensible doctor who's a media tart yeah and And he is and he is exactly like me I've got a twin brother that's something that some people will know I've got a twin brother and he is very much in uh, media himself he's a composer and um uh incredible musician and he is more crazy than I am when he talks he uses his hands he gets really excited and equally can get very very low and down anxious depressed yeah. Like we all can. And yeah. like I say, I definitely can. But we're both very, very much like that. When we first spoke to our dad, he's exactly the same. So he's oh, really wow. excitable. And when you see him do his talking sections on TV, he's very enthusi- like enthusiastic is the word I would describe him as. And it's what people always describe me as. And I've always thought that I'm very much like my mum and I am. Mm. Um, but God, am I like my dad? And I hadn't realized until I met him. And that's looks wise as well. I, I look very much like my mum, but I look so much like my dad. And, and seeing that was huge, like not knowing where, where half yeah. of you has come from. But the personality, because obviously my brother is male, obviously. And as two males who shared the DNA, you know, mm. genes, they're like brother, like they're like twins more than me oh, and my really? brother are. It's incredible. They look identical. They're, personality wise, they're like the same person. So the whole nature nurture thing is fascinating too, because yes. we are carbon copy of our dad in that way and we've never met him until this year you know and we're in our 40s now so, so you, and you've only met on zoom so far it's just only been a pandemic zoom. thing do you have plans yeah. to meet in person yes yes Aww. he used he used to come to England all the time um but sadly my his mum my my grandmother died I think last year so he he used to come to see her right. um but he will definitely come back because he still has a family in England so when he comes we will definitely meet him yeah Oh, I'm so glad I asked you that question. Let me let you calm down, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for sharing that. And something told me to ask you that question and and not leave it till another podcast. And I'm really glad I did because I think it it really ties in everything we've been talking about. Um, You know, not everybody listening to this podcast will identify. There will be people that, you know, are not in that same um, sphere. But I, I would just say that the overwhelming feeling I have is, you know, there is there is a place for all emotions within healthcare and outside of it and a place for all different types of people. And and I love the fact that you found a world that allows you to express all sides of you. And I really love the fact that you found your dad that kind of explains all sides of you. And finally, God, you say physio is a cool profession. I'm totally in awe of you now, Leah. So you're a physio who was a dancer, almost got on Strictly. You're married (laughs) to someone who um, is potentially going to be a comedy writer. Your dad's a media tart. Your brother's a composer. (laughs) Goodness me. You're very cool. (laughs) That's amazing. I love that. When you summarise it, that sounds cool, doesn't it? It's very cool. (laughs) But I I have to, I just as maybe a good way to finish, I I suppose you're absolutely right on paper. And when you'd say it like that, I have a wonderful life and I have great relationships, but I can still get so down and I have to remind Mm. myself Mm. those things. And I have to remember that I I have to work quite hard sometimes to feel joyous or to feel happy and not feel anxious. Um, but I have, and I have, but and whatever it takes to do that, like whether it's reminding myself of that I have all gratitude. That's it. That's what I was going to say. I think gratitude is the key emotion. So, being thankful for what you have, not always wanting more, 
you know, someone said to me once, the enemy of good is better. I tweeted about this when someone mm. said it to me mm. and it was some, it was funny enough. It was a doctor I was speaking to about something completely separate. And he said to me, you know what? The enemy of good is better. And I, I, I welled up and I cried like me. I was all emotional. I said, Oh my God, you just described my life. I, it was really poignant. I, I was like, God, I'm going to print that on a t-shirt and stick it on my wall or something because mm. it really, it really, really called to me in every part of my life. I'm always trying to be better or nothing's good enough or I'm such a perfectionist. And actually what I've got is fantastic and I just I, I wish I could see that more often because I'd probably feel happier more but it's hard it's a challenge yeah I mean that, that, yeah absolutely Liz your, your gratitude is is the antidote isn't it and thank you so much for bringing that in at the end um and I completely identify with gratitude not just for what you have but gratitude for the melancholy as well and I often use the word melancholy rather than sadness because my personal view is there is beauty in all these emotions. Um, and when you when you grade them, when you think some or or classify some as more beautiful, more acceptable than others, you um, do most of them a disservice. And uh, I remember talking to someone years ago uh, about just at a party and I was talking, using my hands and saying, you know, would you rather live here or would you, um, people that are not watching it, might, I'm drawing a flat line or would you rather go up and down? And, you know, for me, and it sounds like you, it, it isn't actually a choice. <laughs> the, the flat line isn't a choice. But part of that gratitude is is learning to be grateful for the the sadness and its beauty, as well as the joy and and, and the immense beauty that, that can be found there too. Mm. Um, yeah. And knowing that emotions are fleeting, that's the other thing. Someone told me once, I, I think about this stuff all the time. It's funny that you need to do this podcast show because I'm very, very reflective about it. But somebody once said to me, happiness isn't a constant. Nothing yeah. is. So she said, if you're constantly, if you're trying to be happy all the time, you're always going to fail. And I was mm. like, gosh, again, another really, 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 uh, really interesting statement. And it, that's a good one because people think, but I should be happy. But well, no you'll be happy sometimes and you'll be sad sometimes mm. and all emotions are fleeting. It's like, I'm trying to, I say it to try and convince myself, you know, but I, that's a, another good thing to try and remember as well is that happiness yes. is an emotion that you can have always. No. It, it has to be. You're just um, on part of it an up and downy yeah mm, yeah I think we're going to trouble we're going to struggle to round this up Liz because we could just keep talking about all these fantastic topics all day and I don't really want to stop talking but we do have to round the podcast we do have to unfortunately people, people are going to tune out eventually <laughs> <laughs> if not already if not already <laughs> no I'm sure it was such a um fun and interesting discussion loved it Liz um and we must do that meet in person I'm really looking forward to that definitely you're like you're next on my list joe that's yes, afraid i'm not sure, in central sure. london one of us will have to travel out a bit but actually uh, maybe soon we'll yeah we'll we'll arrange something or we'll meet halfway or we just all go up to manchester and meet jack have you met jack yet <gasps> no but that, see, that jack's one's, on that my one's list. arranged as well <laughs> jack's on my list well jack's meant to be bringing his boys to see the lion king but i don't they're still too little so <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> everyone get out and meet that. those people below the chest <laughs> <laughs> that sounds yeah. dodgy there's a good place to finish <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> thank you Liz it's been a pleasure thank you so much Joe lovely to speak to you take care bye 
Thank you so much for listening. What an interesting conversation with Liz. What an interesting world she inhabits. I enjoyed just for a moment being able to dip into that and get some insights from Liz about what it's like to work with dancers. And um, I found that whole conversation around performance really interesting uh, and to reflect on how that comes, an element of that performance comes into our working life. Um, and you know, whether, whether you consider that a good thing or not, it's, it's interesting to reflect on. So um, let me know what you enjoyed. Uh, let me know any other topics you would like to be discussed on You Matter. More importantly, if you are a clinician uh, caring for lots of people in all spheres of your life, all day, every day, then do remember, take those breaks, take that time, work out exactly what it is that you need to be okay, because you matter.